the Army's integrated visual augmentation system used to be touted as an achievement of government and industry cooperation. Now the Army is trying to temper expectations for the futuristic goggles some soldiers may wear someday. Federal News Network Scott Massioni joins me with the latest, and sounds like there's problems with this program. Scott, tell us again what IVAS is and how it all works. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting program to begin with. If you imagine or have seen any of the Iron Man movies, it's kind of like that when you can look through these goggles and your commander or anyone can really send in data that you may need. So you could see maybe a picture and information of someone you might be looking for. You could see a map. You can see an augmented reality in front of you so you could do training. Uh, it's really uh, a, something that could be a huge asset for the Army and for really anyone in warfighting to be able to get tons of different data right into the field where they are. All right. So what is the Army saying about it now? What's what's changed here? Yeah. So we heard from Christine Wormuth, who is the Army Secretary yesterday. And what she said was that really IVAS, what we should expect is that it'll be something like the 80s cell phones. So she said, remember early satellite phones from the 80s when people had in their car, they were clunky, they were big, and they were, you know, just something that really, really only the top few had. And they didn't work that well. So now we have iPhones. It just took some time to get there. So what she's saying is that the first iteration of IVAS may not be as streamlined as they were hoping, uh, but it will be an alpha version and they need to start there. And from then, we'll just start keeping working on those iterations working it until it's something new and, and something better. But at the time, you know, we were hearing that IVAS would come out and be a revolutionary technology, something like Iron Man. Uh, now it's kind of sounding like it's going to be something like, you know, an 80s uh, arcade football game, and we're going to have to wait till we get to Madden. Well, those seemed pretty good at the time, but then progress went on. And, of course, there is a lot of commercial development in this so-called metaverse and all these other things where you look in play in a virtual world with goggles on, although people do crash into their dining room tables and generally look like idiots doing it. And so this IVAS program has had a little troubled history, though, right? This is not something that they've been working on since last week. That's right. It's a $22 billion program. It's quite hefty. And what we heard last fall was that they were pushing this program by a year. And part of that was because a lot of the problems they had were visualization of the, the headset. They had resolution quality, quality imaging pro problems. And what they've been doing is working with Microsoft on this. And Microsoft has been, uh, what they've said is a good partner. However, they just can't really get the HoloLens, which is what Microsoft's uh, virtual reality product is to really work the way that they want. The Army has reiterated that it's fully committed to its partnership with Microsoft, that it wants to advance specific technologies to meet the operational requirements, and it's just really not there yet. Uh, so they're going to be planning to do more cybersecurity testing through uh, this year, execute regular testing through 2022, and then hopefully they're going to have something out in the coming years. Now, one other thing to, to keep in, in mind is that Congress has uh, fenced off 20% of this program, 25% of this program's funding until Army can provide some sort of a checkup on this. The current NDAA wants to ensure that the IVAS's battery management system meets the planned requirements. They want a strategy with critical milestones for the 3D geospatial data for the plan, and they want to see uh, how they're going to iteratively, iteratively improve 
the sensors and software throughout the procurement of the system. So even before they want the $1.1 billion that uh, they, they're asking for the procurement of the system in the next year, they need to actually come up with this plan, first of all. Sounds like they've got hardware problems because this is something that has to work in a battle environment, theoretically, unlike the toy ones that you bring home that work inside and in a padded room. And it also sounds like they have software problems, which is a little more surprising when you think about it, since some of these home devices can display high-resolution moving pictures of whatever the game is you're playing, and whereas the Army wants to display some data so it's hard to tell what's going on in there. They've been slightly closed-lipped about this. And, uh, you know, one thing to also take into account is DODIG is doing their own report on this IVAS system. So it's clearly something that's troubled, and it's costing the taxpayers uh, quite a lot of money. So, um, you know, this is something that we should keep an eye on and, and see if there's further cost overruns and co- uh, schedule overruns into this program. So the Army's been looking at this through rose-colored goggles. What's going to come next, do you think? Are they going to, they, they're going to continue with it, though, right? They are planning to continue with it. And what really will be interesting is to see what comes out of this, this congressional report and what com- comes out of this DOD IG report. And then we'll really see if this was uh, software problems, if this is a problem that has to do with how they're working with Microsoft, or if it's an internal problem. You know, the Defense Department has really been trying to close this gap between industry, uh, non-traditional industry, and the Defense Department. And they were kind of holding this up as one of the champions for this, uh, something that could easily be taken from the commercial world and put into the Defense Department world. However, what we're seeing is that there's serious problems with that, at least in this one situation, and possibly in others. And, you know, they've run into other issues with this when it comes to having to deal with classified information, when it comes to actually making things into military grade and using the the type of speed and security that they need. So, uh, you know, those are all things to keep an eye on as this continues to develop. And while we have you, Scott, just tell us about that new Army climate adaptation strategy. Yeah, one of the things that we've seen from the uh, Defense Department in general is that they're starting to take climate change more seriously. We've seen many bases lose some resilience. We saw Tendall Air Force Base in Florida completely demolished by Hurricane Michael. And the Army is now catching up with the Defense Department's strategy and how they're going to be dealing with extreme weather in the future, training and melting Arctic and rising sea levels. So a few things of note that uh, I found particularly interesting were that they want to be greenhouse gas neutral by on installations by 2045. They want to field an all-electric, light-duty, non-tactical vehicle fleet by 2027 and field a non-tactical vehicle fleet in general by 2035. A couple other things is they want more people working on these sorts of, of issues in their headquarters. And then they also want to just reduce operational energy and water use by 2035. And what these the Army and the military in general have to deal with is continuing to serve the mission as effectively as they can, while also reducing greenhouse gases and working in a more energy energy conserving environment. I guess the operative word here is non-tactical because they're not going to turn tanks into electric or anything like that, but they're talking about vehicles they might take the general from one end of the base to the other on or going to visit the press club or something. Exactly. My great my great uncle uh, delivered pies during World War II, so you know a truck like that would definitely use uh, some electricity rather than gas. 
Gosh, if he delivered pies, they could have called him a doughboy. <laughs> Federal News Network, Scott Mossione, thanks so much. Thank you. Check out his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, It it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it 
you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.